Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. I think this whole thing about sleep is way overdrawn because you're going to sleep for eternity, right? And you obviously slept before you were born. So what the fuck do you need to sleep now for? Because it's, this is very precious time. So I think I have to get eight or nine hours sleep or a tail function. Those are not the best filmmakers. Even if they needed eight hours of sleep, they quickly learned you might call them up at one o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. They are 24 hours for a reason. They're to be used properly. I don't believe in the clock. I don't, you know, but I do think sleep is overrated. I think that it's a waste of time. It's literally a waste of time. There's no such thing it's too late to call. Pick up my call. Welcome back to Origins HBO, Present, Past, and Future. A presentation of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. This is episode four, Table for One, a.k.a. The World According to Sheila Nevins. You just heard Sheila's take on sleep, and in this episode, you'll hear a lot more unvarnished and delicious thoughts from the woman who spent more than 35 years at HBO. I'm not going to do a full introduction of Sheila. Trust me, it'll prove to be much more entertaining for you to hear her background, her foreground, and her much stomped upon stomping ground straight from Sheila's mouth instead of for me. All I will add now, before proceeding into Nevinzania, is this. There have been few television executives, for good or bad, to fire up corridors of power like the ferocious and precocious Sheila Nevins, a half-fact, half-fictional character who at times could make even the ultra-powerful feline, played by Faye Dunaway in Patty Chayefsky's classic Network, look like Mew Mew, the playful pussycat. You attended the Yale School of Drama. What fueled your decision to enroll there? I got out of Barnard in 1960. It was a different world then. The pill was not yet hot in terms of us using it. Um, I remember being warned by my girlfriends, you can't use this. I was young and I was pretty and I wanted to be a theater director. And I got into the Yale School of Drama with some kind of scholarship. And I was excited because there were boys there. I had gone to an all-girl high school. I'd like to say it was my devotion to the theater, but it was really, I wanted to meet boys. And I thought that Yale would be a perfect place for it. But when I got there at the drama school, I really fell in love with theater in a deep, deep way. Greek tragedies and Shakespeare. And, you know, I really thought this will be my life. I will be in the theater. I will direct plays. I will modernize old classics and make them accessible to people that never heard of Aeschylus or Sophocles or whatever. I'll, I'll be able to do Antigone and do all these things. So I studied very hard for three years. I worked very hard and I directed a lot of plays and I thought then the world would be my, I guess the expression is my oyster, but I don't like oysters, so that's not so good. But I did think that I could then carry all that information into doing and a job and make a living. Because? Because I was a woman, I didn't understand that women were ushers and actresses. They were not directors. And therefore, whenever I went anywhere for a job, I was offered a job as 
maybe I could do a little PA thing behind the screen, but the thought that I would sit with the director or take notes, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get near the theater. And to make matters worse, you wound up marrying someone who really didn't celebrate your desire to spend time in the theater. I wanted to get married because I wanted to go places and women really didn't travel alone then very much. And I wanted to see the world. I'd never been on an airplane. I'd never been out of, you know, school, really. And um, he wanted me home. In addition to the fact that there were no jobs, let's start with that for women in the theater other than actress. He wanted me home. He wanted me home evenings, which of course knocks out theater, right? And he wanted me definitely home weekends, which double knocks out theater. So I had to give up the theater. So I, I wound up teaching English for two years for USIA on a show called Adventures in English. And that's how I really got into television. I wanted to make a living. You know, and then I heard there was a job at public television on a show called The Great American Dream Machine. I started as a researcher and I realized that television was going to be my theater, that if I was going to get a job, get paid, have my own apartment, I would have to use television. There were jobs in television, all kinds of jobs, PA jobs, researcher jobs, associate producer jobs, certainly not producer jobs. And I decided that television would be the theater. And uh, I also got very angry at all my friends when they would watch television with the lights on. I used to say, when television's on, you have to turn the lights on because that screen is the stage. And so I've always approached television as if it was a stage. I've still approached it that way. How did you actually get to HBO? Someone called me when I was at CBS and I liked CBS, but Don Hewitt wanted me to be on camera. And again, it was this actress, actress, actress. And uh, I didn't want to be on camera. And I said, Don, I want to produce things. And he said, no, no, you're wasting yourself. You're wasting yourself. You're a good talker. You should be like, blah, blah, blah. And uh, somebody called me, Iris Dugau, I think was her name. She called me and said, we're looking for someone to do documentaries at HBO. I didn't know what that was. It's a new cable. I didn't even know what cable was. I, you know, I knew nothing. I knew network. Do you have any ideas? And so I said, let me look through my Rolodex. We had Rolodexes then. And I looked through and I wrote down some names of people. And I thought, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Cable. What the fuck is cable? So I um, went across the street to the, I remember the 42nd Street Library. And I looked up cable television. I thought, holy mackerel, this is the future. No ads, movies without commercials. Dirty things, no interruptions. Whoa, I want this job. So I called back and I said, can I audition for it? Or what do I do? How do I get this job? So I went over and it was in the Time Life building. And I thought, oh, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, you know, woohoo, woohoo, this is good. And um, I interviewed for a job. And that's how I got a job at HBO. And I was there for my life. I've spent my life at HBO. When you arrived at HBO in the early 80s, it was then a somewhat small outfit, right? Oh, so small. And um, we didn't really have offices. It was new. And I was oddly not necessarily brave, but since I was earning so little at CBS, it wasn't like a big change in terms of salary. But you also had Michael Fuchs as your boss. I love Michael. Fearless Michael Fuchs. And he was funny and he was irreverent. And he used dirty language, which unfortunately I picked up. I remember when I went in to see him, he had his two legs up on a desk 
Now, I came from CBS at that point. Nobody had their legs up on their desk. God knows where they had their legs, but they didn't have them up on their desk. And he was going to play tennis with somebody at like two o'clock. I thought they play tennis. <laughs> they go out in the middle of the day. They play tennis. Wow. Woohoo. One of the things Michael made clear at the time was his belief that HBO didn't have money to deficit series television. But he thought the broadcast networks had given up on documentaries and wanted HBO to own the category. So you had a lot of support from the top at the beginning, correct? If I did have it, I wasn't aware of it. I was aware that I was told, deliver 30 shows in six months. And I said, documentary, well, I, I hadn't seen it. And I didn't know what doc- exactly what it was. I knew news. I didn't really know docus. And there was like Dick Cavett and there were like things about the World War and Churchill. And I thought those were docus. And so in the beginning... That's pretty much what I did until I realized I was being boring, repetitive, doing what other people could do, and that I should find something to do there since I had so much freedom, that I should do something that was more like movies, that I should take from fiction and make fact stories based on fiction. Sheila, do you remember an early project that reflects your own personal thinking at the time, something that maybe you translated into HBO content? Sure. Um, the success of the movie Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice or whatever that was called with Natalie Wood is like four people sort of swinging. And I thought, why can't I do sex shows? You know, why can't I break from this mold of docus being about Congress, particularly, or about um, history? Why can't it be like Jaws? Why can't I do killer whales? Why can't I do sexy things? Why can't I do murder? Why does it always have to be the assassination of a president? Why can't I do a mass killing of some kind? Why can't I be like fiction? Why can't I be like theater? Why do I have to stick to the mold of docu's highbrow? I'm just not highbrow. So I really learned from narrative how to make docu's. I didn't really know how else to do it. I would see what did well on HBO or in the theater. And I had the great gift of no ads. So that meant if you could catch them in the beginning, then they would stay because they weren't going to sell super subs in the middle. So it was a gift, really. And Eros was the first. Oh, Eros. Eros, I found at a book fair. There was a book called Eros, and I picked it up and I thought, ooh, Eros, I'm going to call it Eros. I'm going to do Eros. It was too racy for HBO at the time, so it wound up on Cinemax. But it was so successful that it moved back to HBO. And I was having lunch with Michael one day, and I said, you know, the strange thing about the ratings of Eros America, which was on Cinemax, is that it starts very low. And then the I, I was like a ratings hoe. I watched all the numbers. So it would start like for the first 10 minutes. That's where I learned that the first 10 minutes are the most important. It would start down and then it would kind of climb up. And by the time it got to the middle towards the end of the show, actually three quarters in, it was like a ratings hit. And I couldn't figure out why. So we went out. I'll never forget this. We went out and we tested among men and women. And we talked about HBO, blah, blah, blah. And then we asked them about Eros America. Now, these were people who in the pre-interview had obviously told these researchers that they watched the show. They didn't know what the word Eros meant. And that was when I realized, I said to Michael at lunch one day, Michael, we have to change the name. And that's when he came up with, just call it real sex. So we called it real sex. 
And it was a big smash for a long, long time. You wound up leaving HBO for several years and doing independent producing on your own, including Brain Games, which you won a Peabody for. But then you missed HBO, and I guess Fuchs made it possible for you to come back, right? Oh, I missed HBO terribly. I never knew the world outside was so hard because HBO was so cool and easy. Hard work, but easy on your soul. And... um I couldn't make it as an independent producer because I have too much OCD. So if something wasn't right and I didn't have the money to make it right, I would put money into it, which was stupid. I mean, in retrospect, I should have insisted on more money, but I never really felt successful enough to do that. I really wanted to go back to HBO. And you began to put together a rather eclectic buffet of content, everything from investigations to social justice to real sex and cat house. Oh, God, wasn't that great? There was also Four Little Girls, Cellular Closet, Common Threads, Paradise Lost. It just seemed that you came up with a new paradigm for programming, which was that there wasn't going to be a specific DNA involved. Instead, because your interests were so protean, you wanted to embrace different sensibilities and send different messages. But it was all entertainment. And people always thought, and I think this was in your book, I think... And I I learned a lot about myself by reading this book, what a bitch I am, how impossible I am, how in many ways brave I was. But anyway, getting back to this whole thing, everybody assumed that docus were boring and that I did the sex shows and the murder shows and, you know, all those other shows, taxicab confessions, all that. I did those because I had to get the money for the pure shows you know, the four little girl shows. Yet to me, they were all forms of entertainment. They were all very important to me. I mean, sex is part of life. Murder is sadly in life. Mendacity, kindness. Everybody thought it was Peter and Paul that I did the sex shows to pay for the the ones that nudged the world. But that wasn't true. I did the sex shows because I thought they were engaging and interesting. It was part of life. I did the series shows because they were engaging and true and part of life. I didn't distinguish between people confessing in a taxi cab and um, priestly sins, for instance. To me, it was all part of the cycle of life. It wasn't to say that one was as important as the other, but who am I to rate the scale of what matters in life? They were all part of the living experience and they all deserved airing on this thing called HBO. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a grand tradition for television executives to create a vision for themselves built on their love for writers and directors and their devotion to a harmonious creative process. One of the things I was particularly interested in was the way that you worked with filmmakers at HBO. The tyrannical way I worked with them. The autocratic. You know, I was not raised by a king and queen, but I learned a lot about royalty. (laughs) Come on, Sheila. If you were so tyrannical, why do people like Spike Lee, Liz Garbus, 
Alex Gibney, Rory Kennedy keep coming back. But I was the only game in town. So did they come back because they liked me or like working with me or because, you know, that was the bank that cashed the checks? All due respects to the fact that I was a good mentor and all that. I doled it out. You once told me the editing room was your sanctuary. Well, I'm not a religious person, but I'm religious about it. Can you talk a little bit about your process in the editing room? How about being in the editing room when the filmmaker wasn't there? <laughs> um, you know, the editing room is like writing. It's no different than writing. It's just a really remarkable place where if you move this part and put it there, then it works. But if you don't move it, it doesn't work. And I've always had this other belief, which is it's the first 10 minutes. You got to go in, rest, and then tell your story. So is that why several filmmakers told me they were always alarmed when they would hear from you that you were moving things up that they didn't want to give away at the beginning? They said you were almost always very insistent on that. And it was exactly the opposite of what their inclinations were. Didn't I do anything wrong, Jim? I could be really tough. I don't like everybody. Were you the Supreme Court? Meaning, did you like have final say on docus at the company? Yes, yes. That was the gift of HBO. That was the gift because they left me alone. Like I knew the answer, but I didn't really know the answer. I knew the answer by having the freedom to make the mistakes. That's the only way you know the answer. But I don't want to disillusion you. But I would argue that they went where the money was. We paid well. We were the only game in town. As much as I may have been beloved, and as much as I may have been inspirational, I also had the bank account. And the freedom to use those resources at your own instinct. Very few places can your instinct ride the train. You know what I mean? The train stops short because you don't have the resources, you don't have the freedom. I had the freedom and the resources. I would have been a fool not to be good at what I did. Nevins has a tendency to make her success appear a lot easier than it actually was. I had the whole alphabet. How could I not make the best alphabet soup? I mean, I had the whole thing there. I had the money, I had the resources, I had the filmmakers, I had the editing room, I had the editors. I mean, it was like a dream. I mean, I think I may have been dreaming. So how can you not succeed? I'm not saying I'm not terrific. I think I'm terrific, okay? Took me many years of psychiatry to think I was terrific. And I realized I had the power to say what I really think. How many people have that? How many people can say what comes to their mind, especially a woman, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? You have to censor everything. Outside HBO, I censored myself. Inside HBO, I was free. I was given a chance to fly. That would be the best way I could put it. But there are people who can fly and they go right into the wall. I didn't. Turns out, Nevin's success was a lot more difficult for her than others may have suspected. I mean, if a woman took her clothes on, went into the bathtub, came out, she had a penis, I knew that would work, right? But everything that was story, I was always afraid that I had somehow not done it correctly or that I had made a mistake. I have a bravado that covers that part. But if you're my true new psychiatrist and you're free of charge, I will tell you they all were struggles. They were all hard, Jim. They were all painful. I don't need a lot of sleep. And if I did need a lot of sleep, I have no way of finding out because I wrestle every project, even now. Sheila, you've won tons of awards, 
But when we would talk about them, you almost always paid more attention to the ones you lost. What's that about? Isn't that Jewish? Doesn't that come from the pogroms? Oh, you mean a sad Jew is a happy Jew? <laughs> I think, you know, I remember when I was a little girl, I made an, a vase or something for my mother and I, I was coming in the house. I was so excited to show it to my grandma. I said, Grandma, I made mommy's vase. And I came running in and I dropped the vase and it broke into like maybe 30 pieces on the floor. And grandma said to me, that's what happens when you give yourself a kanahara. You know, meaning in Yiddish, that's what happens when you praise yourself. So I think I carried <laughs> that superstition onward in the sense that I'm not really sure that it's so good. It can always be better. In 2018, Sheila Nevins left HBO to, as she put it at the time, pursue the rest of my life. Now you're going to hear the unvarnished and totally transparent version of her departure. I remember reading that Maureen Dowd column about your departure from HBO. It was a beautiful tribute, and you had lovely things to say about HBO. But as I got to know you further, I think we were in your office, I said to you one day, I just wasn't buying that whole narrative that you had decided you had had enough. And then you came clean. Oh, I was fired. Let's just get, let me tell you what your book did, okay? And this is not to, you know, fire you up, a pat on the back. I didn't know till I read this book that I was truly fired. So what Maureen got for me was what I believed at that time. I never figured out why I was leaving HBO. I am fucking 82 years old. I am an old lady, okay? I am still working. I'm really good at what I do, as good as the next guy. But there was something in your book, somebody says, I couldn't believe it. Somebody says, how old is she now? Well, you know, I've done everything you possibly can not to look 82 years old. Okay, good, fine. But I knew something was wrong and I didn't know what it was. It never occurred to me I didn't look fucking good because I was pretty from the time I was three years old, as far as I knew. And age was something that crawled up on me. I never knew anybody who was as old as I was, who, who had as much Botox or facelifts or whatever the fucking word is. But I knew something was wrong at HBO because I didn't understand why I couldn't die there and put my ashes in a box and put it on a shelf there. Why did they just have my awards everywhere? Why couldn't they keep me? Why? Well, when I read your book, I realized I was too old. I was too old. So ultimately, I was fired. They took away everything. They took away the children. I did children's shows. They won Peabody's and things. Took them away. Gave them to one of my colleagues. Took away late night. I don't know. They were popular. I didn't quite understand it. Dummy, dummy, dummy. How could I fix other people's films and not fix my own vision of myself? <laughs> I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. I'm pretty smart and swift, but I couldn't imagine how something is valuable and something working as hard, which was a me, could then be let go. It was very depressing once I was out. It was a tough time leaving HBO. When I was alone and no one answered my phone calls, no more flowers, no more, oh, you have a headache, let me get you an aspirin. No more anything, no more lunch dates. I didn't have HBO anymore. I was just an old person without a job. 
The main thing I remember is looking at my cell phone and not seeing any calls. I remember that. I used to come home and there were 50 calls. You know, you don't have the job, you don't have the power, you don't have the muscle, you're zero. But you were able to gather yourself nevertheless. Yeah, but I didn't get a job. I called everybody I knew, everybody I'd given jobs to, all the Netflix people that I knew. Everybody, 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 nobody wanted me. Nobody called me back. Nobody answered my emails. I was old, I was out, and I was refuse. The next step was a terminal illness, possibly, and death. That was what I was, I guess, headed for, but I don't have either. I'm still alive, and I don't have an illness. Well, I have a lot of illnesses, but they're not terminal. I could have been dead. And I was rescued by MTV. I'm the same bitch I always was now. Just a smaller arena to be a bitch in. So is it true that you've been able to rotate, so to speak, and look back on your years at HBO, not with bitterness, but with maybe peace and pride at all your achievements? No, not true. It tinctured and sort of cast a shadow over a lot of things, because I realized there were other people there who had probably gone through what I had gone through. Colleagues of mine who had disappeared. <laughs> it's kind of like a mafiosa. We, people disappeared and I paid no attention to their disappearances because I'm selfish and because I wanted the work and I, because I love the work, I shouldn't say wanted. No, I look by it as an innocent woman who had talent, who worked very hard and did a good job, but who wasn't really smart about people. I'm smart about films. I'm not that smart about people. I can get tricked. I was fucked, but ultimately maybe they fucked themselves. I won a lot of awards since I've left here. <laughs> I think maybe Botox makes you smart. What do you think? <laughs> Me thinks I need to do a docu-series on Sheila Evans. What a ride that would be. Coming up on episode five of Origins, HBO, present, past, and future. We'll finish at the top. Three former HBO CEOs, Jeff Bukas, Richard Plepler, and Nick Nicholas, talk openly about what it was like to run that organization at desperate times and share their thoughts on what the road ahead looks like for HBO. Thank you for listening to Origins, a presentation of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. This podcast is executive produced by myself and Chris Corcoran, Chief Content Officer and Founding Partner of C13. It's produced and edited by my brother-in-arms, Chris Basil, who always delivers. Many thanks extend to Terrence Malangone, who provides much appreciated production assistance in the trenches, and our terrific Cadence 13 gang. Production coordination by Kelly Rafferty, marketing, PR, and graphic design from Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Hilary Schuff, and Kurt Courtney. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We'll see you next episode. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, 
How great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.